0: This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In
1: 1984,
0: the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we're exploring one of the most famous books on Burgess's list, as writer and academic John Bowen takes us through 1984 by George Orwell. Published in 1949, 1984 is one of the most revered pieces of dystopian fiction ever written. Telling the story of Winston Smith, an office drone who rewrites established history for the Ministry of Truth, Orwell's novel creates a terrifying vision of a totalitarian Britain. As Winston begins to rebel against the authoritarian Big Brother by writing criticisms of the political establishment in his diary, he falls in love with the mysterious Julia and is befriended by O'Brien, who may be a spy for the resistance. George Orwell was born Eric Blair in 1903 in India. He's renowned for his political writing in the non-fiction books The Road to Wigan Pier, Down and Out in Paris and London, and Homage to Catalonia. His novels include Animal Farm, Burmese Days, The Clergyman's Daughter, and Keep the Aspidistra Flying. 1984 was his final novel, and he died in 1950. John Bowen is Professor of 19th-century Literature at the University of York. His main research areas are in 19th and 20th-century fiction, in particular the works of Charles Dickens and other major Victorian novelists. He's the author of Other Dickens, Pickwick to Chuzzlewit, and has edited Anthony Trollope's Barchester Towels and Phineas Redux for Oxford World's Classics. He's contributed to a number of television documentaries and radio programmes, including BBC Radio 4's In Our Time, Front Row, Open Book, Beyond Belief, Today and Women's Hour, Channel 4's Dickens' Secret Lover and BBC Two's Being the Brontes. His edition of George Orwell's 1984 was published by Oxford World's Classics in 2021. Check out the description of this episode for all the relevant links and a list of all the books mentioned. Here's Andrew Biswell of the Burgess Foundation, who spoke to John Bowen in August 2022.
2: It's a great pleasure to welcome John Bowen to the 99 Novels podcast to talk about Orwell, to talk about 1984 and in particular uh, John's edition of 1984 for Oxford World's Classics. Um, Welcome, John. I wonder if, first of all, you could tell us how you first encountered 1984 and indeed what you made of it the first time you read it.
1: Uh, Well, (laughs) it was a long time ago. I was at school. um, And so this must have been like the mid-70s. So it's like before 1984 as a year. Um, And of course, the moment the year happens, uh, everything's different. So then I think probably it was mainly framed. So I must have read it at school. And I think I must have really been interested in it. I remember I read quite a lot of Orwell then, I read Animal Farm and quite a lot of the political writings. Um, and I even went on to read Arthur Cursor's Darkness at Noon, I think. So that I must, it must have kind of got under my skin. Because then, you know, it's such a different political climate. And, and often I think the question was framed as, uh, okay, does all get it right? Will 1984 be like that? And of course, in lots of ways, we knew it wasn't going to be like that, because uh, so many things had changed in the post-war years, the post-war welfare state and the economic boom across Europe. I mean, although still, there was the presence of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, and, you know, fascist states in Spain in the early 70s, and Portugal, and Greece, so there was a sense that the, the totalitarianism was a very real um, kind of force there. Um, so I think it was it was framed quite strongly in political terms, and always the side of Orwell that was a socialist interested me. So I didn't ever read it in quite the Cold War ways that I think perhaps we were being encouraged to. Um, so that, that was that was my sense. But I've I, always found the last third of the book, I still do now, really difficult. You know, it's basically. Um, you know 150 odd pages of torture and um, it's a tough read I think I found it a tough read then and like most people I find the first the first book and probably the second um, the most interesting I mean recently when I reread it for the to write the introduction to the Oxford it was during Covid and you know my one bit of advice is if you're in the middle of a global pandemic don't spend a lot of time reading a book about torture it was because it was so miserable, you know. Uh, and, of course, if you're editing the damn thing, you have to um, read it over and over again really carefully. Um, and I never want to go back to
2: Room 101 with O'Brien ever again. It's very interesting you mention Arthur Kersler and Darkness at Noon, partly because uh, he's hugely influential on Anthony Burgess. Uh, Burgess knew Kersler and um, read his Danube edition of his works and interviewed him um, for BBC Radio when that came out. Um, very interesting um, lines of continuity, I think, between between Kersler and Orwell. Who I don't know if they knew each other. They certainly knew of each other's work.
1: Yes, I think they they, they have a friendship. I think in the forties, um, uh, and I think Orwell learns from Darkness at Noon. So so yeah, I think there there is um there is a personal relationship as well as the the obvious kind of literary affiliations between the between the two books.
2: Well, 1984, as we know, it's the last of Orwell's novels, written in very difficult circumstances when his health was already beginning to fail. I wonder, could you tell us something about the genesis of the book? For example, how it was written and where it was written. So Orwell writes Animal Farm during the war, and then there's a, he has a problem getting it published.
1: And eventually it does c- come out. Uh, He's also then working for the BBC during the war and um, also doing quite a lot of journalism for the Tribune. The very first thing we know for sure as the genesis of the book is from 1943, where he thinks about a a writer and then two characters, I think he calls them X and Y. So right at the start, there's a triangular relationship between two men and a woman. Um, Those are very first notes. And then in 45, I think, uh, just after the war, then his publisher records that he's written the first 12 pages. Now the book doesn't come out till 49. Um, and Orwell writes it sort of in stages interrupted quite seriously by his ill health. So he's got tuberculosis um in a pretty bad form. He may have got it in Spain, he may have got it during his tramping years, we're not sure. Um and uh, he, in order to get away from London, he's offered a cottage on the Isle of Jura in Scotland. And there he finds a remote, deserted farmhouse that's not been lived in for 12 years. And he kind of falls in love with it. It's the end of this, end of a very long track. Um, that You can barely get a car down. So not the place you'd naturally think someone in his state of health would want to live in. You know, there are tough winters up there. But he spends a great deal of time on Jura and you read his diary and it's very little, very little about politics. Like the the wartime diary when he's living in London is a lot about politics. The one up there is all about, you know, the hens laid three eggs today. I've got to dig this patch. We caught so many fish today. Oh, God, the boats come unanchored. So he absolutely throws himself into um trying to turn this wreck of a farmhouse and, uh, uh, into a place where he can live and work. And that's really where most of the writing gets done. And it's not good for his health um, because uh, he ha- there's paraffin lamps, which are smoky. He's smoking himself a lot. So none of these are good for his lungs. And he then has to retype, because he can't get a typist up there because it's so remote, he then has to retype the whole thing personally. Um, so none of this is doing his health any good at all at one you know he's always taking his boat out at one stage they all nearly drown because he gets caught in the famous whirlpool uh, the Corrie of reckon that's up there um, so um, it, it's very much I think an Isle of Jura book um, that's where he retreats to ride um, and it works he, he finishes the book but at the same time also at a great cost to his health
2: Reading 1984 alongside some of Orwell's other fiction, his earlier fiction, how do you think it compares with these other novels, such as Burmese Days, Coming Up for Air, uh, Clergyman's Daughter, which I've always been very fond of, though though few other people are?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, in one way, I think Orwell's kind of got one plot. And the plot is this, right? Somebody is um, miserable. They're somewhere between their late 20s and early 40s. They feel their life is wasted and futile, um, and they 're stuck in some way that the people around them are pretty repellent. The food they eat is pretty disgusting they've never got enough money, and they try and break free from it now that's true about a clergyman's daughter it's true about coming up for air, you know it's true about keep the aspidistra flying, and they all try to break out of this grim, dull, unintellectual physically loathsome, usually very smelly world that they're kind of caught in, they're trapped in. They all try and get away from it. The clergyman's daughter, you know, there she um, does all the things that Orwell does. She kind of walks out, losing her memory, and then she does hot picking, she tramps around. But in the end, she returns to the grim life that she began with. And in a way, that's a bit like 1984 too. You know, 1984, he's... In middle life he feels he's messed his life up he's stuck in a you know tedious just about you know okay job hasn't got enough money food is awful everything smells the people he works with are repellent and he tries to burst out of that with the romance with julia but then of course you know he gets his comeuppance and he's uh, captured and uh, busted so it's so in a way you know, the settings are so different, but and of course the politics is much more explicit in nineteen eighty four than in those earlier books. But the fundamental plot, uh, or the kind of stance that the character and this attempt to break free and the failure is is absolutely, you know, continuous, I think, through through almost all his fiction.
2: It's very interesting. Burgess in ninety-nine novels, he makes two big claims about nineteen eighty-four. First of all, he says it's a comic novel, comic in the sense of yoking together a kind of documentary account of shortages and gloom in the post-war era, and the idea, the impossible notion, he says, of British intellectuals taking over the government of the country. Uh, And the other thing, he says it's not a perfect novel um, on the basis that he says it's too didactic to be considered a novel at all. Uh, interestingly he says the same thing about A Clockwork Orange later on Um, but I I wonder how fair uh, any of that commentary is what what you think of the notion of the comic novel but also the the novel that's sort of too didactic and is kind of um, uh, unbalanced or overbalanced by that
1: yeah I mean there is a kind of grim brio about 1984 you know I mean yeah there are some you know the bits where you know they're doing the physical jerks in the morning, and Winston hasn't touched his toes in several years and this uh he's being harangued from the t v screen to do so um or you know he has to invent at one point um comrade Ogilvy, who is the kind of the a bit like Stakhanov in the Soviet Union, the kind of perfect model worker so in order to when as part of his job rewriting um newspapers. Um, he, he thinks the easiest way to, to cover up this story he's got to get rid of is just to invent a completely fictitious person being given an award. And that's a very nice comic, comic satire of the Soviet Union and, and funny. And also he, there's bits like where Julia falls asleep um, when he's reading out, so he gets this, you know, this document that will reveal the truth about the society and he makes great uh, sacrifices to get it and starts to read it out to Julia who then promptly falls asleep. So there is that. I wouldn't generally think of it as a comic novel, I don't think. I mean, it is... uh, I mean, I see it as as much more like a gothic. It's a gothic novel. Those are the emotions, terror and horror, the gothic, great gothic emotions that it deals in. Um, But there is, you know, a kind of um, (laughs) teeth-clenched, grim wartime kind of humour to it, as there always is with, with Orwell, and a kind of relish for discussed i think that that's that's true um whether it's a failure i mean i it's hard i think your know, novels in a way are such a the novel as a form is so capacious um but it's very hard to say something isn't a novel because almost anything almost anything can be in a novel you know it's not like you can say something isn't a pastoral poem or isn't an epic uh, because there are clear generic um, needs and requirements for those. But I, the novel, I think, is pretty elastic in what it can conclude. Also, I mean, I'm not so sure it is that didactic uh, in that so much. So the whole novel we get not through Orwell, but through the consciousness uh, of Winston Smith. Now, Winston, if you think very early on, almost the first thing we learn about him, he's got this notebook and he's writing down what he's seen and what he has seen is other pictures um some jewish refugees in a boat so that seems very resonant now refugees in a boat being bombed from the air and he says it was a beautiful camera shot and he then gets annoyed with the audience but he seems to not register their suffering at all he's kind of anesthetized to it and he aestheticizes it a beautiful camera shot um, and see it's not that we're getting a view of this society through someone teaching us a lesson but through someone whose whole consciousness is kind of permeated pierced by the norms of this very strange society and he's got a sense that it's not right but it's not that he's somehow some noble figure who's radically different from it he, he's his whole Unconscious almost at that point. The, the thing he most wants to say is, you know, isn't admirable, isn't heroic. It's completely compromised by, by the, the society he's in. And, and he's like that in The Two Minutes Hate as well. Um, he feels it powerfully drawing him in, in which he feels these deep irrational emotions. So I, I, I don't see that all of this, um, as it were, being didactic, What he's interested in, and this seems to me the the power of the book, he's interested in the way our desires, or male desires particularly, are manipulated, their vulnerabilities are used uh, to make them violent in certain ways, or to be subordinate in certain ways. So that that seems to me um, as it were the psychological interest or the psychological complexity or the novelistic kind of achievement of it um so so i don't think um i mean um, well i mean we might not think of it as didactic is that the lessons that people have drawn from it have been so very different so some people draw very conservative lessons you know it's a moral tale about how bad the soviet union was but orwell himself of course uh, says everything he's been written has been fa- in favour of democratic socialism. So so, that, so if if it were a clearly didactic book, then I think there'd be much more consensus about what it is that it's teaching us. Um, but But there are radical doubts, I think, about what that teaching is. So just to take another example, at the very end of the book, there's an account of Newspeak, and that's unintegrated into the story but the position from which it's told sounds like it's from a society um, well beyond and utterly different from the society that we see in 1984. So um, Margaret Atwood has, has, is claiming that that shows that it won't last forever, the world of Big Brother uh, and this perpetual kind of stasis of war between these three states. Because where else could it, this have come from but from a society that had gone beyond it. Um, Now, one doesn't have to buy into the whole optimistic reading of that, but it also um, disturbs, I think, any simple sense that this is a didactic novel, because it's very unclear at that point what it is we're supposed to infer about the relationship between that appendix and the main body of the text. So, so I think so. I think Burgess is kind of interesting. He's provocative as as always. He's I'm glad he points out bits of comedy because they're they're, they're there and they're often uh, ignored by rather po-faced
2: commentators. But but didactic, I probably would push back against. I think you make the argument in your introduction that there are very prominent um, examples in the novel of uh, of gothic writing, which. I think haven't often been noticed or, or, or connected uh, by other people who've uh, who've written about it and commented on it, and I, I wonder if you could say a, a bit more uh, about where you find them and and how those examples of uh, you know sort of dreams and the the elements of gothic build to make the novel as you've argued anti-realistic.
1: Yeah, okay. I wouldn't necessarily say it's anti-realistic. Um, so. So so one way of thinking about the Gothic is it's, as it were, not not realist. But it may be that, that, that there are ways in which he's got affiliations to both. But let me do the Gothic stuff first. Okay, so Winston thinks of himself as being like a ghost, like already dead and a monster. So those are things that he, he you know, that's, that's how he thinks of himself. Um, there's lots of very odd, strange um Powers in the book. So, if you think so, the the emotions of the book, terror, horror, these are the gothic emotions, the sense or feeling of being trapped, of not having choices, of things already being decided beforehand. So, in his relationship with O'Brien, so O'Brien is the the torturer. Um, it seems to be that they've got. It seems from the novel that they've got a telepathic relationship, uh, so that that. Um, Winston dreams seven years before he's being tortured by O'Brien of that torturing. And also, O'Brien knows that he's had that dream. He says, oh, you remember in your dreams when you had that. So either the thought is that he's got a telepathic relationship with him or that he somehow implanted that in his head. So this is all very strange and on the whole doesn't get, get talked about very much. So free will is weak in it there's these strange anticipations, recurrences, prophecies, there's a constant threat of surveillance. People are separated off from something very important to them like the past and their family. They feel like they're a living corpse, Winston does. Um, Sexuality in Gothic is kind of repressed and perverse. Spaces are dark and frightening or solitary and then suddenly burst in on the self is kind of besieged by threats to its bodily integrity and freedom. Now, all those are true of gothic fiction, and in Spades, they're all true of, um, of 1984. And you know, there isn't some gothic castle, but there is the Ministry of Love, the most frightening place, this, which is guarded by lots of armed guards and has got cellars in which you're tortured. So, so this, I think, is is where the whole colouring of the book um, looks. Gothic and draws on the Gothic tradition, and that's where it gets lots of its power. And of course, people often think of Gothic as not being a political, not being a political kind of form, it's an escapist form. But of course, Gothic arises in particularly strongly in the late eighteenth century, around the time of the French Revolution, in which the terror, the political terror, is matched by the fictional terror. And of course, it's also one of the prime ways that people explore perverse sexuality. And this is characteristically, that's also true of 1984. Now, so that's the general Gothic colouring of the book in a way. But there's a particular kind of Gothic called paranoid Gothic, which is usually where you get a triangular relationship between two men and a woman, in which the affective or emotional or sexual relationship between the two men becomes much more powerful and the heteronormative or heterosexual one between the man and the woman. So if you think in um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, there's Frankenstein, the creator, and then the monster, and then, he, then Frankenstein's wife, Elizabeth. And the two male creatures, are, you know, Frankenstein and the monster, are bound together in this incredibly intense relationship of kind of loathing but, but linkage uh, and it ends, or one key moment is where he says, "I'll be with you on your wedding night," says the creature, and kills Elizabeth. So the woman dies through the through the this intense bond between the two men, and, and there are many versions of that in other fictions, like Dickens' *Mystery of Edwin Drood*, for example, and that in some ways is quite similar to O'Brien's intense relationship with. With Winston, so the first time Winston sees him, he doesn't know if he he finds him very handsome. He just wants to have a relationship with him. He doesn't he doesn't care really whether he he'll sacrifice himself in this, but he just wants to have an intense relationship with O'Brien. And one of the key moments in the torturing scenes is where he says, "Do it, do it to Julia." So he betrays his heterosexual romance to the passionate relationship with the other man. So it's a particular form i think is paranoid gothic in which men in this period well, the 19th and 20th centuries explore um their own same-sex desires um so Orwell is someone who's forced into kind of male homosocial we can call them bonds relationships you know uh eton all men, all boys, you know, in the Burma police, all boys, this very male world, which constantly incites desire between men and also prohibits it. So Orwell is both deeply homophobic, you know, he's always criticising the Nancy poets, and at the same time, he's also clearly attracted to men. Um, And often he, you know, for example, there's two children early on who are horrible, and Winston notices how handsome the boy is doesn't mention the doesn't mention the girl so it's both it's fascinated by same-sex desire and the attractiveness of other men he finds o'brien physically very attractive at the same time he's deeply phobic um and that generates i think this kind of strange paranoid gothic and if you said to me what the most distinctive thing about this book is it's the way that it thinks about political desire so some people see it as a book about politics um, but if you think of it as a novel that wants to explore, from a literary point of view, um, politics, it's interesting in the way that our desires are mobilised in politics. Why is it? You know, what is it that leads to the 2 minutes hate or our aesthetic pleasure when we see um, someone being, a, a boatload of refugees being bombed? These are the really disturbing questions that, that Orwell's puzzling about and it's about, particularly about male desire um, within male political desire, I think, um, which is so disturbing, both in its big manifestations. You know, it ends with him saying he loved Big Brother, so he loves another man. Um, so it's, it's at that level, but also on the day-to-day, or also the much more intimate level of the kind of torture that Winston has to suffer uh, in the last third of the book. So that's, that's why I think it's a Gothic. It's both Gothic in its emotions and lots of its um, fictional qualities, and particularly its paranoid Gothic qualities about these relationships between men full of desire and phobia that, that really leave some really interesting insights, I think, about the nature of, of the way that people get desires that they, that they think of as political or can be manipulated by them.
2: It's a compelling argument and one that, that you, you know, substantiate with um, uh, you know, very persuasively lots of evidence where you say that it is at heart a love story. Um, I'm also very interested in the connections with Orwell's political journalism. I've been reading your edition in tandem with Stefan Collini's selected essays in the same Oxford series. Um, and I wonder how far you think 1984 was shaped also, by Orwell's experience of the Spanish Civil War, indeed the Second World War.
1: Yes, of course. I mean, you know, he's someone who is a socialist, but but Spain, I think, teaches him he's already skeptical about Stalinist Russia, and the fact that you know he, we now know he nearly lost his life because he was you know volunteered with a essentially Trotskyist uh, grouping. He was seen as a political enemy, and you could the uh, the Communist Party in spain was you know determined to be hegemonic in the in the struggle against against franco uh, and all himself narrowly escapes with his life so that's very deep in in him you also see i mean the war i think both the kind of the whole landscape of the book looks very post-war you know it, rationing and you know bombed out buildings and um you know, these uh, rocket bombs that come in that are very like V2s. So all is clearly drawing very deeply on just what it was like living during, the, during the, the war in London and also after the war when rationing, of course, continued and there were terrible food shortages and um, and it was very cold and miserable. So he draws on all that misery uh, and also and also his deep, political scepticism about about Stalinist Russia and wanting to try and think the possibility of, um, of a different kind of socialism. I mean, part of the strangeness, though, of 1984 is the fact that the dominant ideology of, um, as it were, the, the of the Airstrip One, which is where he's living, and Oceania, is called Ingsoc, which is short for English Socialism. Um, so so all things you know he 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 both is you see in his political writings you know, passionately committed to english socialism but also then the degenerate version of that is also um the leading kind of thought framework uh for this absolutely hateful state um so it is i mean it, it's really interesting reading his political journalism next to 1984, but I think what's distinctive about the novel is it's a literary investigation. So, as it were, or well, probably until that point, you kind of think the politics isn't deeply there in the fiction. You know, not in Closeman's daughter, say, or or coming up for air. There isn't. You don't. Know, uh, they're two separate realms, as it were, that he's doing. And I think um, what's so striking about 1984 is it's both fully literary right it's kind of like his other novels but it's also saturated with his his politics too his political thinking in the journalism of the of the of the 40s in particular I wonder if we can
2: say something about the the literary roots of the novel Um, I wonder how far does it emerge from Orwell's study of, of the forms of utopia and dystopia and how far is it an extension of the subject matter of animal farm yeah i mean so i
1: won't say anything more about the gothic but that's clearly one thread sure. <laughs> that feeds into it um there's also also of course swift i mean he loves swift um and the kind of satiric edge of the book i think you know draws on that That and he writes very well about swift draws on on that tradition too um there is a a really interesting novel um by Sam Yatin, uh yevgeny Zamyatin, called we that all take some trouble to find. It's not translated into English, I think, so he reads it in French translation, um, which has lots and lots of anticipations of 1984. So Zamyatin was a Bolshevik. He gets arrested um, under the Tsar, so he's an old Bolshevik. Uh, he, <laughs> he then is a, one of the earliest dissidents in the Soviet Union and um, gets arrested again. And I think he's imprisoned in the same prison. <laughs> by, by, by the communists. And so he writes a kind of dystopia in the future in which everybody is visible to each other all the time because they live in glass houses. And the character, again, a strange, mysterious sexual woman, takes him off and um, and suddenly he is broken from his kind of mindless conformity. Uh, so this, you see lots and lots of parallels there. And there is, in fact, a new translation came out a couple of years ago. The one I tried before was, was quite difficult to read. But the new translation is much better. And you, and you see how closely that links to Orwell. So Orwell is inter- interested in um, utopia and dystopia. He's very interested in H.G. Wells. and They quarrel, actually, in the war. But they know each other. Uh, and he's saturated in Wells, in early H.G. Wells. Um, also, he, of course, he knows uh, Brave New World. Um, and, and another writing. So it's it's partly he's drawing on that tradition, I think, um, but then inflecting it all the time in quite distinctive
2: ways, I think. Do you think Orwell is being too pessimistic when he presents this society, this future society, in which dissent has been almost entirely quashed and uh, the possibilities for resistance are so constrained because there's, there's a whole class of people whose job it is to, to carry out this, this surveillance, this constant surveillance of, uh, of almost everyone, certainly of the, 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 the bourgeoisie as the novel presents it? Well, I mean, short answer is yes. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think he, he, um, he does underestimate it. But, I mean, having said that, um, you know, North Korea, I wonder what it's... We don't know about North Korea and about dissent there. Um, and it may be that we might not find out even in our lifetime, um, but it will be interesting to see what, if any, dissent there is there. Um, or in Nazi Germany, um, particularly you know during the war years, one would think internal dissent would be astonishingly difficult there. Um but the, but the more general point, I think, is that um, it's sustainable over a shortish period. But in the case of North Korea, that's a shortish period so far of 70 years. Um, but there are always internal, or, internal contradictions and, or external threats. So as it were, if China pulled the plug on North Korea, it wouldn't last very long. Um, so, so it's vulnerable to external forces. Um and that'd be true, Nazi Germany is vulnerable to to the, the Soviet Union and uh the United Kingdom and the, and um its allies and America destroying it. Uh so there's always that um vulnerability either or contradiction from within or from outside, I think. So he is too pessimistic. But and I think the pessimism and the one of the weirdest bits of the book, and I think one of the things I'm Least happy with, or um, seems to me least successful, is what are called the proles. So the the thought we're supposed to have as we read the book is that eighty percent of the population aren't really regulated at all. They don't need to be. Working people, they kind of they they can easily be distracted with lotteries, and beer, and um, that's about it really. And that's all they're interested in. They just talk about, and they've got and they don't care. Um, Now, if you were looking truthfully at a society like 1984, you'd think, um, okay, 80% of the population, there's no attempt to, to, or very little attempt, to kind of um, control them. that's where resistance would come about. Now, in one way, the weird thing about the book is the the quote-unquote proles are highly valued by... Winston, he says, you know, if there was hope, it came from the proles but On the other hand, every single encounter with them, he is phobic and he's disgusted, you know, by by their stupidity or their coarseness or their whatever it might be. So that seems to be very, very odd and unreal- <laughs> unrealistic, really, um, and seems to just stem from part of Orwell's own, you know, class position and. Um in a way inability to recognize the way that working people uh organize themselves politically, so you know when he goes to he writes the the book that becomes Ro Wigan pier he he goes to stay with trade unionists you know um but they don't appear uh in his book so hes like forms of political self organization by the working class you know all the extraordinary culture that built the trade union movement you know or in the uh, mining communities or in many you know in the mill towns of lancashire um this very rich social and political culture all in a way or eric blair seemed blind to it or willfully um to ignore it um and that that's true as a general political point i think uh, about his writing um that there's a there's a what replaces it is a kind of disgust at the smelliness sometimes of working people. Um, But also that I think affects the political vision of 1984 and makes that bit implausible really, I think. So the weakest scenes seem to me the one, for example, where he meets the old bloke in the pub and tries to, when Winston meets the old bloke in the pub and tries to get him to talk about what it was like in the old days. um, It's like all their memories have been erased. Um, but they don't even have, you can't see any mechanism by which that might have happened. Um, and they don't even have telescreens, as it were, the overwhelming majority of the population. So the surveillance is very selective by the small elite over, what, over the, outer, the inner party, carry out this surveillance work over the um, outer party, the kind of people like Winston, while completely ignoring, for the most part, The overwhelming majority of the population, and that does seem to be a a very odd way um, to to think about social life. Um, And also, I think one reason why, um, of course, he's too pessimistic. (laughs) He's too pessimistic about about um, the lack of contradiction or the lack of resistance or dissent in that
2: society. But it seems novel. <laughs> 1984 has been adapted for television and film. Uh, there's a stage play, there's a ballet. Most recently, there's a graphic novel by Fido Nesti. Uh, it's very interesting to us in relation to the, the various film and stage adaptations of A Clockwork Orange. Um, but how well do you think the important elements of 1984 have survived those translations and adaptations? Also, do you think anything gets lost along the way?
1: I mean, there are notorious examples of where very serious major things are lost so the the film there's a film in the nineteen fifties very much a cold War film which rewrites the ending you know so the ending is 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 pessimistic and he says you know, he loves Big brother uh, and it's rewritten in a kind of cold war American idiom that he suddenly Bursts out with a condemnation of Big Brother at the end, so it's a moment of heroic resistance to the brainwashing that, that he's been um, enduring. So that is, is as it were, a travesty of the book. The ballet, I think, is is very interesting. Um, part of the problem, I think, with ballet, of course, is that the bodies you're watching are very beautiful ones. Um, they're dancers' bodies, and they're very expressive, and of course. You know, the whole of Orwell's vision is about the pains of the body, you know. And um, Julia, yeah, Julia, you can dance, but Winston is much harder because, of course, he's got five false teeth and he's aging and he can't touch his toes in the book. Um, and mm-hmm. so, so ballet is a is a difficult form in that way. It can bring out some of the kind of choreographed um, regularity of social life in it. Um, but that sense of the acute vulnerability of the body, I think, um, is something that the uh, dancers just intrinsically, because their nature, of their body, or or always rather um, self-hating relationship to the body, is it, hard to capture. Um, dramatizations, I mean, I think they they work. I think the what perhaps they lose is, you know, I talked earlier about the way that we first see. We kind of get into his head into Winston's head when he's filling his writing his diary and you realize just how kind of tainted or corrupted he's been by the society's in from that response to the the bombing of the ship and that I think is much harder to dramatize those psychic processes so everything as it were in the novel comes through Winston or through Winston's consciousness and that of course because dramas necessarily externalize things they want action rather than thought um that sense of the sheer strangeness of winston um and just how perverse his imagination is you know when he first sees julia he said he wants to flog her to death with a rubber truncheon he wants to shoot her full of arrows like saint sebastian so that deeply perverse erotic desire well it's fine you can do it on the page um that's much harder i think to dramatise. Um, so, some of the, the darker, weirder stuff, um, the strange things that have happened to Winston's consciousness, the strange feelings, you know, the memories that he has of his mother, which seem to me so interesting, um, and that lead to an extraordinary bit later on where he's imprisoned um, and a drunken, disgusting woman comes in asking what his name is, and he says, Smith, and she says, oh, I have. Smith, I might be your mother and then she vomits all over him. And Winston thinks, Oh yes, yeah, she might be. Because he'd lost his mother earlier but never knew what happened to her. So moments like that, I think, um, the the haunted side of um Winston, the mother fixated one, the one with strange memories and dreams, um perverse desires, those I think are much harder to dramatise and the and the um Uh, And and as it were, you you get it much more powerfully in the book. So it's it's more disturbing, I think, the book um, than its adaptations.
2: The other thing I wanted to ask you about in relation to Orwell was was Dickens. Knowing that you've published very widely on Dickens and also having read Orwell's long essay, um, expressing his enthusiasm for um, certain parts of the Dickens canon, especially Great Expectations, as I remember, um, I wonder whether you you find any um, elements of that uh, enthusiasm that he had for for Dickens translating either into this novel or any of his other fiction.
1: Yeah, I mean he, I mean, it's a great essay, I think, on Dickens. The one, um, and he's obviously absolutely inward with it. He's got an amazing range of reference across the the body of the work. Um, he's a you know great literary critic, and one thing he was going to write. Uh, just before he dies, was a piece on um, evil in war, and I I so regret that he never did that because I think it would have been very acute. Um, so yeah, with Dickens, uh, I don't think there's a I don't think there's a lot in 1984 that you think of as Dickensian. Um, uh, where I think one of the great claims that he makes in the essay. I don't think he's quite right is he says Dickens is basically a change of heart man, right? So that um, in a way he's depoliticizing. He thinks in the end, you know, a bit like Scrooge. So Scrooge is the example, so Scrooge is this miserable capitalist. And then he has a change of heart, right? The spirits make him change his change his you know, feelings and all is well. And Orwell generalises that across the whole canon of Dickens and says he's basically a change of heart man. He's not interested in structural change or political change. Um, he just thinks that somehow you'll make people um, kinder or nicer. I don't think that's true. I think Dickens is much more complex and subtle than that. Um, yeah, he borrows, in the earlier fiction, I think, like, um, he borrows names from Dickens, so Mrs. Creevey, um in... Is it in clergyman's daughter, I think. Um, you know, obviously there's Miss Lacreavy and Nicholas Nickleby. Um, part of the kind of comic grotesqueness that Orwell can do quite well um, is, I think, derives from Dickens. But it's probably inflected, I think, through George Gissing, who's a kind of also a great admirer of Dickens, but also more sort of um gr- grim and miserable and disgusted, really. Um I think you know, Dickens loves popular life. He loves it and he knows it and he celebrates it and he finds virtue in it. Um whereas I think Orwell for all the class reasons the the, the way he was you know from his, his history finds that a much harder thing to do. Um there isn't that celebration of popular life and the ethical goodness often of of working people or people um, who are, you know, if, in, if you're in a Dickens novel and you want help, you ask the poor and they'll help you. Whereas, whereas, in, <laughs> whereas in Orwell, they'll probably vomit all over you.
2: <laughs> one last question, which is the question that, that ends each episode of the 99 Novels podcast. If you could add another book to Burgess's list of 99 novels, which one would it be and why? OK,
1: uh, right. And of course, the list got quite long after a while. I started to think, oh, what's missing here? Um, and, you know, J.G. Farrell, you know, Troubles and Siege of Krishnapur, I think, would be run as Samuel Beckett's trilogy, Molloy, Malone and Dye's the unnameable, you know, that would be on my list. John Berger's novel, G, I think, would be there. John Cotseer's Life and Times, Michael Kay. Um, but of course, the one thing that's so striking, I think, is, is there are relatively few women novelists on that. Um, no Roshman Lehman, no Penelope Fitzgerald. I mean, Penelope Fitzgerald's Offshore would be a strong contender, I think. Molly Keane's Good Behavior would be a strong contender. Um, my favorite recent thing, although it's probably more short stories than a novel, is Eve Babbitt's Slow Days, Fast Company, which is wonderful. But I think having gone through all those possibles at one point, as I've been thinking about it, I think probably it would be Gene Reese's Wide Sargasso Sea, um, which is such. You know, it's sixty-six. It comes out, but it, it seems still to be ahead of us. You know, so uh, oh God, so richly anticipatory of so much that comes after in terms of thinking about, you know, fictionally, f- you know, formally innovative. It's, you know, it's interested in the, uh, you know, it's it's thinking the post-colonial. You know, in in this most kind of deeply idiomatic way. Uh, it just seems to me astonishingly kind of prescient novel, just out, out of nowhere, really, um, and and still immensely rich. And so many, so many novelists have read Jane Eyre and, and been dominated by it or repeated it, and she radically uh, rethinks that absolutely canonical, you know, text in in world literature. From a, a t- you can never read it in the same way again. So I think Gene Reese's why Sargasso Sea I would finally plump for.
2: Well, you've been so generous, you, I think you, you should have all of the novels you've mentioned <laughs> as well. Okay, um, thank you very th- much. Th- thank you, John. That, that's been uh, fascinating and has really uh, opened up the, the book for, for me and I'm sure uh, other people listening. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me.
0: You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. John Bowen's edition of 1984 is published by Oxford World's Classics and available from all good bookshops. The theme music is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D minor and is performed by No Dice Collective. It can be found online at nodicecollective.com. For more information about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.